0: Welcome to Journal to Work, the podcast of the Journal of Hand Surgery European Volume. This is a series of exciting podcasts hosted by and featuring experts in the field of hand surgery. Today's episode is hosted by Miss Jane McEachan, consultant hand surgeon at the Fife Hand Clinic in Scotland. Over to you, Jane. Welcome to the European Journal of Hand Surgery podcast, my name is Jane McKechen, and I'm an assistant editor at the journal. I'm delighted to welcome two guests to this podcast. The first guest is Miriam Marx, who is a researcher from Zurich in Switzerland, and who has an extensive experience of outcomes measurement in base of thumb arthroplasty. Frederick Verstrecken is my second guest. Frederick is a consultant hand and wrist surgeon from Antwerp in Belgium. Frederick has an extensive research portfolio which includes several papers on base of thumb arthroplasty. So, welcome to you both.
1: Hi Jane, thank thank you you very much for the invitation.
0: Um, And we've managed to
1: coordinate
0: three countries all to be online at the same time and nobody's signed in an hour early. So that's all very good news for me. The first paper we're going to be discussing this evening is entitled Long-Term Survival Analysis of 191 Maya Prostheses for Trapeziometacarpal Arthritis. Now, this is published in the February edition of the journal, and the lead author is Leo Klich. The study comes from a unit in Montpellier. Miriam, can I ask you to to give your thoughts on this paper? Yeah,
1: Jane. So um, as you know, I'm a researcher and not a hand surgeon. So I'm going to focus on the methods of the paper. And yeah, I was very happy to read both papers because both paper report long-term follow-up of implant arthroplasties of the thumb. Um, The paper of Shish et al. has a large sample size with 198 Maya prostheses. And they also report um, median follow up of almost six years and follow up with up to 12 years. So if you read that, um, you are quite impressed um, of this long follow up and long term follow up studies are very important for implants because only with long term follow up, you can judge the survival of an implant and the effectiveness of an implant. I see one methodological drawback of the study regarding the follow-up because they included all patients they had and some patients only had a follow-up of 17 days which is quite short for implant survival and some patients had a follow-up of up to 12 years so it's quite a large range. And I would have loved to see if they focus on the patients who have, for example, at least a five-year follow-up and not include everything they have. And so it's not quite clear how many patients have a five-year follow-up, six-year, ten-year follow-up. It's not quite clear in the paper. But again, we have to congratulate uh, the authors nevertheless for their large sample size and their long follow-up.
0: Thank you for that, Miriam. One of the problems from my perspective, although the final follow-up was at 12 years, the range was from 17 days, as you say, to 140 months, which isn't much longer than 12 years. And I think when you're looking at survival curves at the end of a 12-year period, then actually there are not many patients with that follow-up. So each loss... Uh, impacts enormously on the survival curve yeah and on the estimation
1: of the survival curve um, they have at the final follow-up a large confidence interval because i assume they have only a few patients that makes a large um, variance in the data so uh, yeah i would love to have seen how many patients have uh, a follow-up five, six, seven, eight years, that would make the data more reliable and you can judge the data better if you see we have 50 patients with five years follow-up and so on.
0: I know that you don't traditionally use the quick dash, Miriam, but a median quick dash of 20 is perfectly reasonable for this type of patient. Does this mean anything to you or, or do you think in terms of other scores? Um,
1: yeah, yeah, as you know, I'm not a fan of the quick dash to assess the effect of thumb based osteoarthritis because the quick dash um, is influenced by shoulder function, elbow function. Um, so I suggest using other uh, methods, but nevertheless, they did patient reported outcome, which is quite good. And the final quick dash score in the Chish paper of, um, 25 is quite good. Um, I had a look at the paper with normative values and for this cohort normative values are between 11 and 20. So they are a bit above normative values, but 20 is still a good score. But um, the retrospective nature of the study doesn't allow a comparison between baseline and follow-up. It would be great to have baseline data but They don't have. Um, they included their first patients in 2003, and I think in that time um, the study requirements were not that strict than today, and only a few authors did prospective studies, so they had no other chance than to do a retrospective study now.
0: Frederick, can I ask, do you have any experience of the Maya prosthesis specifically?
2: Well, I don't have. Uh, experience with the Maya specifically, but I have a long experience with the RPA prosthesis, which is exactly uh, exact very 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 similar to to the Maya prosthesis and uh, yeah this, this study really confirms previous outcome reports that that have been published that uh, the 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 results can be very good, but uh, it's still it's only five point eight years mean follow-up no it's a little bit first you when I first read the the paper it says long-term survival and then it says 12 years full up and so on so i said oh this is this is going to be very interesting because what we're really interested in is figures beyond 10 years 10 years of follow-up and and it's a very high number of patients and we know it's very difficult to do this this kind of retrospective research and uh, stimulate patients to come back and so on but still it's if you read it well this it's actually from 17 days as you said to 140 months and i think 140 months is not even not even twelve years, if I if I make the count. So on average, it's five point eight years, mm-hmm. and we have a couple of outcome results with, with five uh, outcome studies with five point eight years, and and they confirm the good outcome. We need so the Maya is is a is a ball and socket. Articulation—it's it's a metal-on-polyethylene. It's uncemented. with uh, it. It has a coating, and I think these are the type of prostheses that have stood the, the test of time. And we know that we've had disastrous results with some of the CMC replacements, and I think that's what the reason why they're they're actually not very popular at all in in some parts of the world. But this type of prosthesis, a, a ball and socket, metal-on-polyethylene uncemented hydroxyapatite hydroxyapatite coat it seems to uh, stand the test of time something that's specific in this paper is that they all the patients had a retentive cup and a retentive cup means that the polyethylene has a color uh, which which makes the articulation more stable the risk of dislocation is lower but it probably causes more stress more forces on the cup and it might cause some some more loosening than a non-retentive cup, which has not we does not have the polyethylene color. I, and one thing also that I, that I don't don't find really clear in the paper is that they they mention an anterior and a lateral approach. Now, I don't think that's correct. I don't think they I think they mean the posterior or the dorsal approach and not the anterior approach. I cannot see how you can put the CMC one prosthesis in through through an anterior approach. So I think they refuse that and I think this, they mean the the posterior dorsal, Dorsal approach. The biggest problem was dislocation, huh? the biggest complication. We know that's many of, often that's often a technical problem. It's it's surgeon related. It's it's because the components were not positioned well or the tension was not good enough. So that's in the learning curve, and that's something that's almost solved with with the dual mobility uh, cups that we have now, and and also Maya has now a dual mobility, which which means that the polyethylene is is articulating. In the metal cup and between and in the between the head of the prosthesis, so there's dual mobility, which increases the size of the head and which significantly diminishes the risk of dislocation. There's one study that had a, a surgeon, one surgeon, where the dislocation rate diminished from 7.5 percent to 0.2 percent or something, so it's it has a big impact on on the learning curve, the, it, and it decreases the or, or almost eliminates the most most common uh, complication that we've seen with CMC1 arthroplasty. As the final thing, what what I think is the most important is at the end, if you ask the patient, would you have the procedure again? Yes or no? And in, in this study, 90% said they would have the procedure again, which is in, in line with, with, with the other paper we're going to discuss and which is in line with other experience. And this is much higher than than when when this same question is asked to a patient who has had a trapezectomy, I think, uh, where, where that, percentage is mostly around 80
0: percent. Well we could move on to discuss the second paper and then we have an opportunity to compare the two. Uh, Mm -hmm. So our second paper this evening comes from France again uh, and this is entitled the ISIS prosthesis in 77 cases of trapeziometacarpal arthritis.
2: When you say France again. That's really the, it's the country, and we need to pay credit to to France and to some surgeons, like a uh, person that we we should I think mention is Delacafinier, who really started it. And if we're doing this, it's 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 really thanks to the the French people and the uh, the perseverance, which which they kept trying and and go th- and change designs, and so and we're now at the point we are thanks to a couple of uh, of, of French surgeons who. Who, who kept believing in, in, this, in this concept and, and brought us where we are now? And uh, sorry to interrupt you on this, but
0: no, uh, no, that's it's... okay. Miriam, have you? Can you run us through the the scientific methods of the ISIS paper? Yeah,
1: um, the
0: Fouquet study.
1: They reviewed um, seventy-seven cases, and uh, it's also a retrospective study. But they have the advantage that they have at least some baseline data. They have the quick dash data from preoperative, for example, um, but they don't have clinical data at baseline. But at least they have the quick dash and can say that the quick dash improved from 59 to 24, which is a high increase. And again, 24 is a good value for this age group. In contrast to the SHISH paper, they said uh, we only include patients who have at least a five-year follow-up. The follow-up also ranges in this study, but uh, they have the criterion we need to have a minimum five years follow-up that makes the data more reliable and uh, the conclusion of the paper more reliable. Again, they showed a survival curve, as in the other study, and the survival rate um, was high with 94%. And yes, so I think it's a methodological sound study. Um, I think they did the the best they can with a retrospective study as they at least searched in their um, clinical records for baseline data. What I'm missing is the number of patients who have baseline data. They just said uh, the quick dash improved from 59 to 24, but we actually don't know how many patients filled in baseline data and follow-up data. So uh, I'm not sure if uh, really all 77 patients had baseline data, but that's just a small point in this study. The author said that uh, a limitation is the high drop-off rate Um, They have a follow-up rate of, I think, uh, 65%. I think that's not a limitation to have five-year follow-up of 65%. I think that's quite a high number. And I often see um, studies with shorter follow-up who will have a very small follow-up rate of only 30 to 40%. So I think it's quite a high five-year
0: follow-up rate. Thank you. I'm going to turn to Frederick now, because one of the interesting things about this study was that around, maybe it's about a 50-50 split of cemented versus uncemented cups. The cemented cups did not come out well compared to the uncemented cups. Can you tell us about the, the history of the use of cement in this prosthesis?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the early designs uh, and many of the almost all the early designs had cemented uh, components uh, and, and, and we we all know that the fixation of the cup is the problem. Huh? There is no there is no problem with stems and and you can uh, but the, there was a problem with the with the fixation of the of the cups.
0: Why is fixation of the cup a problem?
2: Because it, the trapezium is just a small bone. And and uh, the cups have a diameter of uh, eight to nine millimeters, and and sometimes the trapezium is only eleven or ten or eleven millimeters in diameter at the, at the smallest part. So that's really uh, it's really challenging to to position it well, and then mm-hmm. to get it fixed well. If if you would if we would be able to to, to use a cup with a stem such as the metacarpal like a three four centimeter stem probably uh loosening up of the cup would not be so much of a problem but there's just just a little bone where where you have little room for error so uh it's technically demanding to position it well and and everyone will agree that uh if we go into this maybe later but the, this is a technically demanding procedure and there is a learning curve and that's mainly because of the positioning uh, of the cup and that's wh- where we've seen most of the changes. So the stem design hasn't changed in most of the procedures a lot, but uh, the cup design has changed and, and we've gone clearly from cemented cups to uncemented cups. And this is this is interesting about this paper that this again confirms that cemented cups don't do well and this is a, even an understatement you know, of, of the 14 failures, 13 were cemented cups and, and there, as you said there were 50 50 uh in in the study so it's this is abandoned and uh i, I think uh, nowadays i think nobody will use cemented cups for the trapezium it's and then what came instead is the uh, titanium coating and hydroxyapatite coating we we got this from the hip uh, prosthesis obviously which which has given us much better fixation and much less loosening and longer follow up better longer follow up results so I think there's clear consensus that we now, we, we go for uncemented hydroxyapatite-coated uh, cups. And then the shape of the cup, that's another thing. It can be either a conical or a spherical cup. Cup The the results, the outcome results that have been published on that are, are pretty similar. So that's really surgeon's, surgeon's preference, I think.
0: Do you think the influence for these designs has all come from hips, or do you think it's come also from uh looking at the way dentists and facial maxillary surgeons work
2: yeah i am i'm sure uh, a lot came also from that from that area yeah uh and and we know that some of the companies that make these prostheses are coming from the nordic countries where also a lot of the dentistry this uh fixation research came from so i'm sure it's a combination and uh, like the dual mobility for example Came to us from from the hip replacements and 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 uh, the, the 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 fact that we can do do this and and probably will not have more wear is based on hip research on, on dual mobility cups. So I think the engineers designing this they they get try to get as much information from different areas, but surely also from axial facial, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And and one of the companies was uh, was Biomet, who, who who produced the. Uh, the RP prostheses at that time. And they were also big in, in, in uh, maxillofacial and uh, implants and that. So I'm sure that the same same research the same uh, science was used. Yeah.
0: Miriam, um, your experience as part of Daniel Herren's group in Zurich, what implant are you used to following up and measuring? So in our
1: department, they are only using the touch implant. That's a dual mobility implant. Um, Our hand surgeons started in 2018 using implant arthroplasty. Before, they just did resection arthroplasty, just did trapezium out and ligament uh, reconstruction and tendon interposition. And in 2018, they um, saw the touch and implanted the first, and now they are so happy with the implant we are running a prospective registry so we document every patient with this implant pre-operatively and up to 10 years after surgery to have also long time follow-up data now we have the first patients with a five-year follow-up so our data are not long-term yet but we hope to see it in the future um, yeah but we have no experience with the isis and maya single mobility implants
0: when your data is ready i can um guarantee that we'll take it very seriously in the journal of hand surgery the european journal <laughs> as a for where to for where to publish your data yeah uh, we, we already submit our two-year data to your journal <laughs> frederick you use the touch as well do you
2: yeah i do uh but uh, as I said, there are several similar design prostheses on the market that are uh, that are equivalent. I think uh, if uh, the idea is to use a non-cemented uh, ball and socket uh, totalplasty. Mm-hmm.
1: Frederick, I have one question to you. Here in these papers, um, they also report the complication of dequervains tendin- tendinitis. We also see it in our patients. What is your experience uh, with that complication, or do you do anything to prevent this complication?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Miriam, and and it's a question that often comes up. And some surgeons seem to have it much more than than other surgeons. I know surgeons who will do a decervent release automatically with every prosthesis. Personally, I I think it has to do with lengthening of the first uh, column, huh? and there is a risk with uh when you put in your prosthesis, that you if you do a big release that you need to lengthen the thumb ray to get a stable uh, articulation and a stable thumb and by lengthening it probably it puts more more stress or more uh, force on the on the on the tendons and then secondary people who who already have a a uh, tendency to have this ligament release uh, might might develop it postoperatively. I I see it very rarely, and I have not never found it to be a clinical problem in in my practice. But I I do very uh, little releases of as little possible releases, and I try not to lengthen, try not to lengthen the or, or at least not over lengthen the thumb. But I think it has the only explanation possibly is that it has to do with lengthening. I think.
0: Staying on the the on the operative side, Frederick. You said that you thought it would be virtually impossible to do a thumb arthroplasty through an anterior approach. Can you explain to me why it would be impossible?
2: Because I mean, you, you would have to retract the, the flexor tendons and, and the neurovascular bundles and so on. And there is a so much easier way to get to the joint from, from the posterior side or from the lateral side. And uh, I, I think everybody will agree that there's two options and it depends on what you feel most familiar with. Very often that will be the approach that you use to do a trapezectomy. And, and I would encourage everybody who starts doing this procedure that to use the same approach that you use to do a trapezectomy so that uh, in the learning curve you can easily change from joint arthroplasty to trapezectomy if, if there would be a, a problem during, during the procedure.
0: And do you take off the APL tendon?
2: No, I, I try to avoid that. I know there's surgeons who do that, and I think it's been described in one of the, one of the papers. That's right. Uh, uh, it has to do with the release that you do, and there's different opinions about that. If you, if you do this kind of surgery and you're doing a big release, that simplifies the approach to the trapezium and it makes the procedure a, a little less technically demanding but a bigger release means a bigger incision means probably more pain more bleeding and so on and means releasing uh, tendons especially the abductor of the metacarpal which which seems very logical that if you take it off you have to ref- fix it fix it back on no and and uh, or you're going to at least lose some strength in the in the thumb so i fi- i try I, I try to to avoid that absolutely no
0: Historically, surgeons would offer APL release for thumb-based arthritis in an attempt to prevent further subluxation of the CMC joint, although I have never seen this done during my career in hand surgery. But moving on, you have both convinced me that I should be setting up a base of thumb arthroplasty service for my patients in Fife. Miriam, you've published on the threshold for surgery in base of thumb arthritis. So can you comment on when I should stop treating patients conservatively and start offering joint replacement?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I think um, you're referring to our study uh, in which we find clinical threshold when it's best to operate the patient. And what we found is that you can operate too early so if the patient has only a pain score of 3, then there's no big chance that uh, the patient will get a relevant improvement out of the surgery. So then it's better to wait and to explain the patient, Oh, if we do surgery now, you might be a bit better, but the change wouldn't be relevant to you. And on the other side, if you have a patient with a pain of 8 or 9 or 10, Definitely, or Most likely, he or she will be better after surgery, but there's a chance that the patient still has some residual pain and that he's not satisfied because of the residual pain. So it also might be too late to operate the patient. So it's important to explain to the patient um, when is the optimal time point to do surgery, but this is the statistical view. And the decision making depends so much on your personal experience. You see the individual patient um, and you can judge with your experience if it's useful to operate him or to wait.
0: My experience is very much that people with higher pain scores tend to catastrophize. It's almost a flag if somebody has got very severe pain. What do you think is that? Um, It might be. We we didn't uh, investigate
1: it in our study. We have no measure about pain catastrophizing. But we saw that uh, there's a chance that they still have residual pain and therefore are not satisfied with the outcome because they do not achieve a patient-acceptable symptom state, which means that they do not achieve pain-free or a pain state with which they are satisfied.
0: Have you any comments to make on the threshold for surgery, Frederick?
2: Well, I I agree with Miriam that that for us also pain is the is the most important parameter, and and I agree with you Jane that catastrophic pain 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 levels up to nine to ten always uh, is is it worries me, and and uh, especially if it's not correlated to uh, radiographic changes or clinical changes. Uh, but apart from pain, another criterion that we use is. Progressive adduction contracture and MCP hyperextension, because we know that if if this develops, it's it's progressive and it will it will have an impact on the eventual outcome of the surgery, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and that's what I, I, I that's what we explain to the patients. So you you're you're going into adduction contracture. This is not going to stop with years. This will get worse, and we know that range of motion after surgery correlates with range of motion before surgery. So uh, it it may have an impact, and sometimes we would. Do surgery more early in these patients uh, than than purely on based based on pain, uh, because we 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 see we see that it's so difficult afterwards to correct it if it's really a very contracted and and uh, immobile PMC joint.
0: I think that's a very good point, point. and trapeziectomy is not known for its ability to prevent a Z deformity. So that is one of the the huge advantages I think of the lengthening option. That comes with arthroplasty. So we've decided who to to offer the surgery to. How do I, as a surgeon, go about avoiding a disastrous
2: learning curve? Say that you're you're lucky to to start it now and not 15 years ago when I started doing this, because there's so much available now to uh, and so much more knowledge and so much more experience from people that you can. At least get to know all the pitfalls and and try to avoid the learning curve that I think the the surgeons that like me have gone through. first of all, if I if I would start, um, I would choose choose a prosthesis yeah, uh, I would look at the literature, that's what I did and I say, okay, that seems like the one that has uh, the most uh, the test of time has got the best uh, publications and most long-term outcome. and I'll go for that type and see if that prosthesis is available in your country, in your region, if you're at your hospital, or or, or um, that you can get it, uh, and uh, then I would choose an approach, Yeah, uh, and if, if you used to do the trapezectomy through a dorsal approach, I would do the procedure through the same approach. If you use the lateral approach, I would use uh, do the procedure through the lateral approach, so that during the learning curve, there is no stress, and if you see something goes wrong, you can just change to trapezectomy and explain and consent to patients for do- for both procedures. That's what I did in the in the beginning um, and so that you're not forced to put a procedure in knowing that you have a problem that's gonna cause uh, gonna cause complications early on. so you just change it. if you see a, fra- a crack in the trapezium, if you see the cup is not well positioned, then don't, stop go do a trapezectomy don't try to solve it by by continuing because you will you will have a, a lot of early complications um, I think if I was you, if I decided on that, I would watch a lot of videos and uh, on on different channels, you can find surgical technique videos and you'll see that everybody has a little bit different technique, but there is a rationale and and people will explain why they do this and that. And then I would sort of decide for myself. Uh, And then the next step is I would, I would go to a cadaver courses. Uh, I think all the companies organize cadaver courses with experienced surgeons and you can do one or two cases, yourself. So it, and it's good. And when I've done the cadaver courses, the next step, I think I would go and visit a surgeon who's who's, who's doing a lot of these and then do, do scrub with him and then let him really in the operating room, uh, see what's, what's really the little tricks and things that you need to watch out for. And then I think you're ready to, to go and do this and you will find out that it's not a very difficult procedure. But there are some tips and tricks, and there are some some caveats that you need to know before before embarking and starting on this.
0: I think the thing that you know you alluded to earlier by saying that in the UK we've been fairly slow to adopt arthroplasty, and I think that largely reflects the setup of our NHS, where introduction of new techniques and implants is a, a fairly lengthy and involved procedure. Where a costing has to be given in and most managers who don't want to spend more money will will not listen to the sort of proposals that you need to get through for this kind of surgery. What I do, what comes across from the people that, who do arthroplasty is that people with a joint replacement at the base of the thumb rather than a, an excision arthroplasty feel that their thumb is fairly normal, whereas people with an excision arthroplasty feel far from normal with the way their thumb works. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And just, I, I was trained to the UK and in the United States and I did trapezectomies. I started working in 99 and I've, for five, six years, I've only done trapezectomies, being very septic about it. But there was a surgeon in town who was doing a lot of prosthesis. And then I got to see patients of him or I got patients of mine and said, well, I've had a trapezectomy six months now and it's still very painful. My neighbor had a prosthesis and after six weeks she was back to my neighbor work and she was very happy. I said maybe I should start doing this. And this is fifteen years ago. And I slowly started selected patients. Well, it took me a year and to be totally convinced that this is really for the right patient is, is a is a very rewarding procedure. And as you as you said, the recovery is much faster the thumb feels more normal. If I have patients who've had a trapezectomy on one side and a prosthesis on the other side, they will, almost all of them will prefer the, the, the arthroplasty, arthroplasty side. And then now that we get these 10 year outcome results that are 80 to 90% survival rate, then I, th- I think you've got enough data to convince even uh, NHS uh, managers that there is a place for this, there is a place for this procedure. I'm not saying that everybody needs these procedures, but especially the ones with with, with the adduction contracture or with very loose joints or with MCP hyperextension, that that's the ideal population where, where you can really change the, the function of the hand, I think.
0: Miriam, yeah. have, you, have you any insight into who does particularly badly with arthroplasty?
1: At the moment, to be honest, not because most of our patients are very happy, but um, to add something to Frederik's comment, how to convince the health authorities, uh, an argument against the arthroplasty might be, it's very expensive to implant such a fancy thing, just do a resection because it works. But if you see the cost from a societal perspective, you see that patients return to work much faster than after resection arthroplasty. We recently did a study and compared two cohorts of our clinic where we saw that patients after trapezectomy returned to work after three months and our implant patients with the touch returned after six weeks. So they are twice as fast back to work and we know from different studies that the cost due to loss of productivity due to absence from work or reduced productivity at work is much higher than the actual treatment cost. So I think that's a very strong argument for the health authorities and the insurances to pay
0: for this intervention. Well, if we have a sudden influx of demand in the United Kingdom, I'm going to point the NHS managers both of your ways and say that you persuaded the rest of the country. <laughs> I think it's probably about time to wind up. Are there any points that either
2: of you would like to make? Yeah, I, I want to I would like to say something, Jane. I, I still think after all this that trapezectomy is the gold standard. Yeah. And and if if you're doing let's say five to ten cases per year, probably you should stick to that and do trapezectomies. Huh? Uh, I think there is a place for prosthesis but it's technically more demanding and and if you you need to to do what i think at least 20 to 30 cases per year you feel really confident about it so i don't want to give the message that everybody needs a prosthesis i think they're both at the end if you put everything in, in balance they're quite equivalent i think but there, there are definitely pros also for the prosthesis
0: well that's been really really interesting very informative and thank you both for your time and for your discussion this evening. Thank you for listening to the Journal to Work podcast of the Journal of Hand Surgery, European Volume. If you like what you heard and would like to tune in to hear more experts in hand surgery, then please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts.